never failed us and that you're always holding on to us. Lord, I pray that a sense of your strength would come upon us this morning as we behold the glory of the risen Christ. Um, Strengthen our hearts that we might serve you well and that we might worship you with all that we are. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Good to see you. Welcome back over to the Encore again. If you got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Revelation chapter 1, or some people like to say Revelations, but it's Revelation. Just for the record, I'm going to be reading, <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to be reading uh, the entire first chapter. We've got a lot to talk about today, so I'm going to jump right in. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And all God's people said, unbelievable. Pray with me one more time. Father, please open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from this glorious, glorious passage. Please be merciful to us and allow us to behold Christ this morning by the power of your word and your spirit. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray, amen. Well, we are starting a new series this morning. We're going to be spending eight weeks on the seven churches, eight weeks on the seven churches. The seven churches are listed there, um, as we just read, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. You will find a short letter written to each one of them in chapters two and three of Revelation. That's where we're we're going in the coming weeks. But today, we're just going to kind of do an introduction um, to those letters, and then I'll talk a little bit about why here. Also, if you are doing the Mercy Hill Bible reading plan, which I would highly encourage you to do, especially this month, I mean, I hope you do it the whole year, but especially this month, if you're doing that, uh, over the next two months, you will be reading through the entire book 
of Revelation. And so I want to kind of give uh, two introductions two introductions this morning as, as we uh, start this series. Is one is just kind of to the book of Revelation as a whole, and then another introduction um, into uh, the seven churches and kind of the message itself this morning. Um, but first of all, just the book of Revelation as a whole, I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, people usually fall into two camps when it comes to the book of Revelation. Either people really love it and when I say really love it, it's like that's all they talk about is Revelation and they get a little bit weird with it. Other people are kind of like freaked out by it. And because you've got all this crazy imagery, and, and it's crazy, but it's, it's divine, it's inspired, um, and, it's, and it's for a purpose, but you've got harlots and dragons and beasts, oh my. Um, and it kind of just, just freaks people out and they're not really sure uh, what to do with it. But the purpose of the book of Revelation is very explicit and he mentions it there just in those first three verses. Um, it is written to bless God's people. It is written to bless God's people. If you look in verse three, it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the prophecy of this book. Let me tell you something. As you, go th as you read it, hopefully, over the next couple months, um, there's going to be things in it that you do not understand. Listen, welcome to the club. That's okay, there is still a blessing in it, in reading it. And the more we read it more and more and more, um, the God's people are, are blessed by it. It's also given to strengthen God's people. If you look quickly down at verse nine, um, John, the apostle John, is exiled on the island of Patmos. It's nothing more than just a couple miles of rock that kind of shoots up out of the Mediterranean Sea. He was exiled there um, uh, by the Roman Empire uh, as a punishment for uh, preaching what he was preaching about Jesus Christ. But on this kind of barren rock, he's going to see some of the most glorious things that um, any, any human eyes have ever, have ever seen. But if you look at verse nine, it's, he calls himself our brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom, and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Is it not only is the book of Revelation written to bless God's people, but the book of Revelation is written to strengthen God's people. God's people throughout history have gained strength to fight the battles that are before them and to be faithful witnesses just like Jesus Christ in the things that face them in their everyday lives by reading this book and by uh, beholding who he is. Uh, the, the key to the book of Revelation, okay, I'm gonna give you a little hint, a little clue here, okay? The key to understanding the book of Revelation is not found in first reading Revelation and then jumping to the news headlines. It's not how you do it, I'm telling you. What you want to do is you want to read the book of Revelation and then you want to go back and trace all that Revelation talks about regarding the Old Testament and the image that's used and then you want to move to the news headlines. I drew you this, can I see that, that little graph thing or little chart. Hey, listen, I, I hand drew that myself. You're welcome. Uh, Julia was off all week. Otherwise, our graphic design game is usually a little bit better than this, but it is what it is. Um, and so what, mo what most people do is they read the book of Revelation and they, then they immediately jump to what CNN is saying or what Fox News is saying and stuff that's going on in Israel and in Russia and that type of stuff. Now, hear me. The book of Revelation absolutely helps us, it helps form our worldview and understand what is happening not only in our day, but it has, that has been true for the church for the past 2,000 years, okay? The book of Revelation absolutely helps Christians understand the world in which we live, but the key to understanding it is not running from the book to the current events. It is going back to the Old Testament and all the images that are used. Now listen, um, this, is, this is a conservative statistic, not found by me, but like most scholars will agree on this, is that conservative estimates say that 70% of the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation are mentioning or directly quoting passages from the Old Testament. And again, I would say that is a very conservative estimate. In fact, I think it's way conservative. It is hard to move two inches in the book of Revelation without bumping into Old Testament imagery. All right? And so what it's and it's and that's on purpose. It's not by accident, it's by design. And so what Jesus wants for us, what John wants for us as he's writing these things down, is to understand this book by going back and understanding the rest of the Bible and then allowing it to form and to shape the world in which we live. What happens when you jump right from the book of Revelation directly to current events is you get things like Edgar C. Wizen. Wizenant wrote back in, I think it was 1987 or 1986, but he wrote 88 reasons why the rapture will take place in 1988. 
It did real well in 1987. After that, not so much. Um, But that's what happens when you jump from the book of Revelation directly to current events. The Bible interprets the Bible. And there is no juicier book in all of Scripture that mentions the rest of the Scriptures than the book of Revelation. Okay? And so as, in fact, I, I dare you, I double dare you, I triple dog dare you to, I don't know where that came from, um, as you're reading the book of Revelation over the next two months, Lord willing, to use your little cross-references. You guys know what the cross-references are in your Bibles? Like you might have like a center column reference. Not every Bible has this. Mine is kind of like at the end of every, of every page. Just do the cross-references that are given for the verses that you read in the book of Revelation. Uh, spoiler, it, it will take you longer to read the book, okay? Um, but it's worth it. And it's, what, and it's what the book wants you to do, is to go back and understand the rest of it. Sinclair Ferguson even goes so far as to give this illustration, probably somewhat controversial, but I, I agree with it. He says, in regards to the rest of the New Testament, he says the New Testament is like the book, Revelation is like the movie. Okay, so if you've ever, I don't know, Lord of the Rings or... Um, uh, Chronicles of Narnia or something like that. You read the book, but then it comes out in the movie. The mo- it's, I mean, there are, there are action sequences, special effects that make the most legit IMAX movie seem like an old black and white film with no audio. It's just absolutely, absolutely amazing. And, <coughs> excuse me, um, the purpose isn't just to give us a detailed timeline you know, like the guy who wrote 88 Reasons Why the Rapture will Take Place in 1988. But it is a sweeping panorama of world history and a vision of, listen, certain victory for the people of God that has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. And this victorious triumph of the Lamb through his people is described for us in detail and is so good that we don't even really have anything in this world to compare it to, which is why the book of Revelation will blow our minds. Um, not because it's so difficult, but because it's so good. It is so good. Um, the book of Revelation has, even though it's, it's yes, yeah, going to take us back to the Old Testament, and so it's going to take us back, and it also calls us forward. But here's the thing. The book of Revelation, as I've already kind of said, it's for now. It has always been for the people of God now. And so be blessed by it. Be strengthened by it. Now, specifically for us here on Sunday mornings over the next two months, like I said, we're going to be looking uh, just at these passages in chapter two and three that are these, these seven letters that Jesus writes and he dictates to the apostle John who's going to write them down and give them to the messenger of the seven churches to share with, with these churches. So again, it's, it's, it's written within a context to people just like the rest of the New Testament is. Okay, so when we're studying the book of Ephesians, we go, hmm, what was going on in Ephesus? What were some of the issues? When we study Corinthians, we go, man, what was going on in Corinth? We try to understand it within its context. The same thing should be done, again, with the book of Revelation. Again, not jumping just to current events. You, you can take that down now, Josh, but thanks. Um, but we want, to, we want to seek to understand it within, within its context. Now, as we look at what Jesus is going to write to these churches, there are seven of them. Um, Many of you guys know that I had the opportunity back in September to, to go to this area of modern-day Turkey, which is where Asia Minor was back in Paul's, Paul's day. I can tell you for a fact that there were more than just seven churches in that region. Uh, the city of Colossae was there, which you know the book of Colossians is written to, uh, Heropolis and some others. But the idea of seven, and you'll find this, again, just another little, I don't know, clue to look for as you read through Revelation. Revelation is absolutely littered with sevens. Okay, it is littered with sevens. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. There are seven blessings or benedictions throughout the book. You also have these seven churches. You saw the seven spirits of God, which we'll talk about just briefly here in a little bit. But seven throughout the Bible is this number of completeness. So these were literal seven churches that existed back in back at the time that this was written. But again, the reason that I think that there's seven of them given is there's this idea of completeness for all of God's people, for all of the church throughout history. Okay, And so we can learn from them. And of course, God's word is, is timeless and true and is able to shape us. But here's what I want us to get this morning as we look at, at, at chapter one. How many of you guys have ever watched that show, Undercover Boss? Anybody? Okay. 
I feel bad for those people, honestly. They don't know. They're, you know, you're tricking them. Here comes the boss, the CEO, whatever, and they're, you know, co-workers, you know, kind of low-level uh, employees just, just working with them. And they don't know who they're talking to, and they also don't know all the time who's, who's talking to them, right? And I say all that because as we look over the next several weeks at what Jesus is going to say, it's of the utmost importance that we first understand who he is, who he is that says it, all right? Um, to say the same thing a different way, in, in the pursuit of this whole month reading through this and looking at these letters over the next couple of weeks, um, in the pursuit of trying to understand the prophecy, we do not want to miss the person of the book. And that is Jesus Christ. Um, and what you have in chapter one, and again, I would argue all day long that this is precisely what we're supposed to do, is we're supposed to look at him who's about to speak to us. It is an amazing profile that maybe even if you've never heard it before, hopefully you caught it as we were just reading. So I'm, I've tried to break this down into four little categories. The person of the book, Jesus Christ, who it is that's going to be speaking to us. Um, I say it broke this down into four categories because at one point this past week, I had a 24-point sermon. You're welcome that I didn't roll with that. I literally was doing them at 24. If I do two minutes on each one, that'd be 48 minutes. Eh. I was like, it's not going to work. Um, so I tried to break it down. I think overall, uh, you know, I, I might have, it might, we might still have like 13 or 14, but I put them into four categories to try to keep us on track. I want to talk about who he is, what he's done, how he's described, and what he commands. Who he is what he's done, how he is described, and what he commands. And there are some subpoints underneath there, but who's counting? Let's go. All right. First of all, who he is. I want, you, I want to point your attention to the three titles. There are more than this, but let me look at the three titles in verse 5. Let me start back in verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's, that's Father God. You have the seven spirits. Again, it's, it's not that there's actually seven spirits, but it's a sevenfold Holy Spirit. Again, it's the, the seven spirits that you have the fullness of the Spirit. Um, so you have God the Father, the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so while this greeting um, and this salutation in the book is intentionally Trinitarian there in verses four and five, it, the, the entire chapter, though is overwhelming Christological. It is all about Jesus. And here we see three titles referring to who he is. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And again, I'm going to have to run through these fast. There are not just a sermon, but there are sermons that could be preached on every single one of these titles and everything that we're going to talk about this morning. So just know that we're just skimming the surface. But first of all, the faithful witness is that God created man in his image and it was good. And God created man in his image to bring him glory. But man, through the temptation and enticement of the enemy, he fell, marring the image of God in him, though it is, it is still there somewhat, but it is marred because of sin. That every part of us, our body, our soul, and our spirit is marred because of sin. And throughout the storyline of the Bible, God creating man in his image to bring him glory. There's, it, it's like this theme that comes along early on in Genesis where it talks about this seed of the woman that is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And so you have all these different men come on the scene and you know, there's, even at the very beginning there's Cain and Abel, but then Cain kills Abel, so it's not gonna be him. And then is it gonna be another one of their sons? Is it going to be Noah? Is it, you know, but Noah you know, gets drunk and does some things he shouldn't. Is it going to be Moses? Moses has some anger issues. Is it going to be David? David looks like this, this great hope. David is the small town kid that everybody loves to root for and he steps up to the plate and he kills Goliath, but then he commits adultery and has the woman's husband murdered. Not gonna be him. Who is going to come to again restore humanity and be a faithful witness to bring God the glory that he deserves? Jesus Christ. He is the second Adam. He came to not only just restore what was once in the Garden of Eden, but to take it beyond that and to make it even better. There is coming a day in glory when he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye, which is going to be mentioned many times throughout this book as you read it over the next couple months. 
but he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye and Satan, sin and death, it is going to be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity and we're going to reign with him forever and ever. It does not get any better than that. But Jesus Christ, he is the faithful witness. He's the one that came to give God the Father the glory that he deserves. And he died to call us to follow him in that. He is not only the faithful witness, and these, these titles are linked, I would argue, but not only is he the faithful witness, but he is the firstborn from the dead. Now when the Bible talks about Jesus being the firstborn, like in Colossians uh, chapter one, verse 15, it talks about him being the firstborn of creation. It also mentions in Colossians chapter one, uh, verse 18, that he's the firstborn from the dead, just as it does here. It's not that Jesus was at some point created. When it's talking about firstborn, it's not talking about chronology as it is superiority. Okay, to be the firstborn son in a family was to be able to get the birthright, to be able to get the inheritance. Jesus here is called the firstborn from the dead. Now that's an interesting title because Jesus is nothing but life. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was with God, the word was God, he was in the beginning with God, all things were created through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. Why is he not called the firstborn of the living? Because there is no one else who's living. It's him alone. But he came to make the dead alive. Amen? And so he is the firstborn from the dead. He comes, he conquers Satan, sin, death. Hey, later on, again, there's so much we're not going to be able to get to. He holds the keys, verse 18, of death in Hades. Why? Because he went into the grave where the keys were kept on the other side of the gate. He gets them, he opens up the gates of hell, and he says, the dead can come out and live if you believe in me. And every single one of us is born into this kingdom of darkness. We're born into this kingdom of death. But Jesus came to set us free, amen? It does not get any bigger or better than this, folks. (laughs) He is the faithful witness He is the firstborn from the dead, and he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And here's what I want you to get about this. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth, not just someday. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth now, right now, today. I don't know what is this, February 4th, 5th, 4th, 2024. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Though there is darkness, though there is sin, though there are wicked rulers on thrones and in white houses and in the Kremlin and, you know, wherever, all over the world, Jesus Christ reigns over them all. Absolutely. It's not just a someday thing, it's a now thing, today. And he is accomplishing his plans, he is accomplishing his will, even through wicked rulers, just as he always has throughout the entire Bible. This is what he does, Psalm chapter two. It says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh, and against his anointed, Jesus Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, let us cast their cords away, saying, we will not be ruled by him. Oh yes, you will. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury. And this is God speaking, he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, that's Jesus, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And he says this, I love this. And this is again speaking to the kings of the earth. Be warned, here's what you need to do. Kiss the son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Listen, folks, I said that the book of Revelation is written. We're going to see just a glorious, a glorious picture 
of the risen Christ, of, of the Christ that we just stood a little bit and, and stood and sang to a little bit ago. Um, and, and, and this Christ, like I said, this book is given this vision of Christ to strengthen the hearts of God's people. You do not be afraid of anybody. Do you understand me? I don't care what title or position they have. Yes, yeah, I know Romans 13. Let's show, you know, let's show reverence. Let's honor the authorities. I get all that. But there are wicked people in government. There are wicked people in rulership all over. And is Jesus Christ over it all? And so is that why can we ultimately in some ways show honor where we can and how we should as a way of ultimately showing honor to God? Absolutely. But it's also our job and our responsibility as people to say to the kings, to say to the authorities who are wicked, as we have opportunity to stand up as faithful witnesses just like Jesus Christ was and say, let me tell you something, dear king, you would have no authority unless God had given it to you and here's what you need to do. You need to kiss the son. You need to bow the knee to him. And this has been the call of the people of God throughout the ages to stand up and at times to, to speak truth to power as faithful witnesses, just like Jesus was. So much that could be said on that. Who is he? Faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. What has he done? Look at verse five and six. This is directly related to our position and who we are. Look at the end of verse five. It says to him who loves us, and what has he done? He has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's the first thing. Secondly, he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and, other, forever and ever. He has freed us from our sins, and he has made us to be a kingdom of priests. Now, both of these together, this is undoubtedly Exodus language. This is language from the book of Exodus. If you remember in the book of Exodus, you had Pharaoh, who was kind of the ruler of the world at that time. You had the people of God, the Hebrew children, who were enslaved to Pharaoh. God sends numerous plagues. You will see numerous plagues, very similar, throughout the book of Revelation. Again, there's Old Testament imagery all over the place. Moses goes in and he says to Pharaoh, let my people go, or God says, let my people go through Moses, that they may come out and worship me or serve me. And remember that he does all the plagues, you know, the hail, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the darkness, all that stuff. And it happens upon the Egyptian people, but not the Hebrew people. But the last plague, the last plague, where the angel of death is going to come over the land and the firstborn of every household is going to die if it's conditional, if there's one thing that must save you, whether you were Egyptian or Hebrew, is that you had to have the blood over the doorposts of your home. It was only if the blood was there, whether you were Egyptian or Hebrew, didn't matter. The only way to be brought through from that judgment of death was to be under the blood. And this is part of the imagery that is being called forth here, is that he has freed us from our sins by his blood. I've shared this illustration before, but it came up again this past week, and somebody that I was meeting with, um, as we we're just going through the book of Hebrews, and uh, we're, we're actually in Hebrews chapter 11, and talking about you know Moses and how he's mentioned there, and then we got onto this rabbit trail of Exodus and the idea of the Passover. But D. A. Carson shares this story about just you know imagining if there were two Jewish men on the night that the death angel was going to pass over the land. And, you know, they're talking, and the, the one, one says, man, this is, this is terrifying, isn't it? It's scary. Here comes the death angel, and the other one goes, well, yeah, it is kind of scary, but I'm under the blood. I ain't worried about it. And the other one says, well, yeah, but this is really scary. Like, I mean, is the blood really going to be enough? And he goes, I've got it over my doorpost. God says I'm good. And then he says to the other one, have you put the blood over your door, doorpost? And the guy says, yeah, I've, I put the blood over my doorpost. And the guy says, well, don't worry about it. Now, here's the question. The question that D.A. Carson poses is, which one of those men, both of whom had the blood over the doorpost, but one was worried about it, one wasn't, which one of them is delivered? The answer is both. But you understand that the experience of that salvation for both people was very different. One was worried about it and one wasn't. One said, I'm under the blood, I'm good, he's redeemed me, he's freed me, I'm going through to glory. The other one said, huh, I don't know, but he still made it through. What, what's your experience? 
How do you live day by day? Jesus Christ came. I mean, don't miss the glorious promise here. And again, we could sit on this for weeks. Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross. He shed his blood that you might be set free, people. But so many of us live in fear. No one's questioning whether or not you're a sinner or continue to sin. And listen, we don't wink at sin, but the whole reason Jesus came is because you are a sinner. Because I am a sinner. But the blood is enough. The blood of Christ is enough. And all we got to do is put it under the blood and we go forward in freedom. But when we revert back to the ways of the law, thinking that it's something in us that we have to do, we find ourselves bound again and again and again. Not only does he come and has he freed us from our sins by his blood, but right along with it, again, this is what you find in the book of Exodus and subsequently Leviticus and Numbers is, is he has made us to be a kingdom of priests. Again, in the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes. There was only one of those tribes, the Levites, that were the priests. They were the ones that were to minister in the tabernacle, later on in the temple. They would come in and out of the presence of God, serving in you know, the holy place and only the high priest once a year into the most holy place where God's presence was, but, but here, what he's saying is under the new covenant, Jesus Christ came to make every single one of his people, he's made us together into a kingdom of priests that live in his presence, you understand? We live in his presence. Just like the Old Testament Levites would come and go out from the presence of the Lord, we come, we live and move and have our being in the presence of God. This isn't just in the book of Revelation. I'm not stretching this. It's central to what it means to be a disciple and to be a part of his body, the church. First Peter chapter two, Peter says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. A few verses later in verse nine, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, that he has called us out and he's called us to worship in absolutely all that we do. Um, going on, I just don't, I don't really have, this doesn't really fall under one of my points, but I don't care, you're gonna get it any, anyway. I love verse seven, um, verses six and seven. I, you know, he says at the end of this, then he's made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And then it says, amen, which means yes, let it be so. There's another amen at the end of verse seven. Verse seven, he says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now, I do think that there's a case to be made that, that um, we will wail and we will mourn as we see his glory and understand that it was also our sin that put him on the cross, that caused him to be pierced. I don't think that's a stretch at all. I think that's right and that's good even for God's people to mourn at our sin and the fact that the precious lamb of God had to be slain for it. But I also think there's a distinction here in verses uh, five and six and, all, and, and between seven in kind of the language where he says, back in, in, in five, he says, to him who loves us and has freed us and has made us a kingdom of priests. And then verse seven, he says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and th those and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. He is coming to grant salvation to his people. He is also coming to judge those that do not belong to him. And again, there is only one thing that defines whether or not you belong to him or you don't belong to him. Have you put the blood over your life? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? The Bible says in John chapter one that to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, see folks, listen, the, you know, A.W. Tozer said the most important thing about a person is what they think about when they think about God. Jesus is God. By extension, the, one of the most important things about us is what we think about when we think about Jesus Christ. And so many of us have been sold a bill of goods by the world and by pagan false churches out there that we serve this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus with feathered hair who just kind of floats around. That is not the image of the Jesus we see in this book. 
We see a God who will come, and yes, did he die for everybody? Did he die for the sins of the whole world? Is the Bible in the book of Revelation, even later on towards the end, going to say, whosoever will may come? Absolutely, but he is also coming to judge wickedness. You do not get to make a Jesus in your own image. He is who he is, and who he is is glorious just the way he is. He does not need to, he he does not apologize for who he is, and neither do we as his people need to apologize for who he is. And unfortunately, in the church today, this is exactly what you have. You have pastors and you have Christians all over the place who feel the need to apologize to take off what we perceive to be some of the rough edges of who Jesus is, and it is blasphemous. It is blasphemous to do so. Okay, where was I? Verse 7. He's coming with the clouds. It... Oh, yeah, the image of the clouds. Um, just bonus thought here. We, we look up at the clouds. The, the image of the clouds in the scriptures, don't have time to go through all of it, but it's this idea of judgment when he's coming on the clouds. We look up at the clouds. Imagine looking out those windows and seeing a storm rolling in. We are underneath the clouds, and the clouds will do what they want, and we are at their mercy. But he stands upon them, and they do his bidding and they carry him wherever he commands. He has all authority. He is over it all. Um, Very quickly, let me just read this now. I'm I'm gonna talk more about this passage from Daniel chapter seven as we go on here through the letter, but very quickly, because this this is an Old Testament image that you'll find not just here in this chapter, but all throughout this book, but in Daniel chapter seven, uh, very important passage, verses nine through 14 this idea of the ancient of days and the son of man. Daniel chapter seven, verse nine says, as I looked, it's so sobering, thrones were placed and the ancient of days, I love that title, that's God. And the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames Its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. And thousands upon thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment, the books were opened. I looked, and then because of the sound of the great words of the horn that was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, and get this, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is Jesus. And he came, and he was presented to the ancient of days. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, don't have a ton of time to sit on this, but what I would like to argue just briefly, and then I gotta just blow by here, is that that passage that I just read in Daniel, that has already happened. The Ancient of Days was seated on his throne. Jesus Christ, at the ascension, after he conquered death, rose again, and then ascended, and you remember Acts chapter one, he ascends on the clouds before the throne of God, and he takes his seat, and he pours out then his Holy Spirit some days later, and he is currently ruling the world right now. Though he still allows rebellious, wicked people to exist in his mercy and grace that they may obtain salvation. We gotta move on to how he's described. Again, there's a, I got 10 points here. I'm just gonna mention them, okay? Uh, first, look at verses 12 through 16, okay? Um, who he is, what he did, and how he's described. John says, then I turned, verse 12, 
to see the voice of the one that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Did you get that phrase? That's from Daniel chapter 7. One like the son of man becoming presented before the ancient of days, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. First of all, um, He's in the midst of the lampstands. If you jump down to verse 20, you'll see that the golden lampstands are the seven churches, okay? That imagery is important. What is a church to be? It is to be a light in the world. It is to be a witness to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And he is in the midst of his true church. He is in the midst of the lampstands. Dear friends, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. I'm telling you he's in our midst here today. By the power of the Spirit in the proclamation of the word, he stands among us and he knows, he knows everything. And he's clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash. Now this is undoubtedly imagery of the priest in the Old Testament and especially the high priest. Again, we are a kingdom of priests, but there's only one high priest and that's Jesus Christ. And we get that especially from this idea of the golden sash around his chest. You can look that up in Exodus chapter 28 as well as some other places. Again, you're just, you go anywhere in Revelation, you bump into Old Testament imagery. And verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like wool, white like snow. Now listen, if you re- were listening carefully, back in the passage I read in Daniel chapter 7, in Daniel chapter 7, You see that the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father, is seated on his throne, and the Ancient of Days has hair that is white like snow, like pure wool. Here, that same imagery is described to Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus is God. He is God. Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. Jesus is the image of the Father. He is God. This is divine attribute being attributed to Jesus Christ. The idea of whiteness here, Proverbs chapter 16, Proverbs chapter 20, I believe it is, talks about how a gray head or a silver head is a a crown of glory for people here. Jesus' hair is white. He has all wisdom. And yet, many times, if we're honest, like I got a little bit of white coming in here and there. My boys lately have really been dogging me about this little patch of white hair I got on the back of my head for some reason. I tell them it's because of stress of having three teenagers. But, uh, you know, when we begin to get old and gray, our bodies tend to decline a little bit. As we, maybe we get older, maybe we get some wisdom, but we also begin to lose some strength, but not so with Jesus Christ. See, his, his hair is white. It is a crown of glory. He is the wisest, oldest, and again, by oldest, I mean eternal, wisest being that has ever existed, but he has not for one second waned in his strength. His eyes are like fire. His face is like the sun shining in all its strength. So you have here this picture of all wisdom, of all knowledge, of all understanding, and yet all strength. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Bronze is a picture of strength in, um, in the Bible. It's his feet, it's where he stands, and they've been refined as if they'd been through the furnace. Why? Because he stood in the midst of the fire. He's the faithful witness. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you remember, they were thrown into the fiery furnace, God could have delivered them, but they said, well, O King Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we still will not bow the knee. And remember, God didn't keep them from it, but God went, with it, went through it with them, amen? And Jesus stood alone at the cross in Gethsemane, he stood in the midst of the fire and he stands and he rules with all authority. His voice is like many rushing waters. This Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezekiel says, Behold, the glory of God and of Israel was coming from the east and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. Again, this is a picture of divinity here as Christ stands. And in his right hand, he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is the word that he speaks. Not only is the book of Revelation, this is another thing I didn't mention earlier, but not only is the book of Revelation given to both bless us and to strengthen his people, but it's also given to both protect and purify his people. Is it the sword, the word of his mouth? This book right here, 66 books, all inspired, 
It is given to both protect and to purify his people. It is a sharp, double-edged sword. It will say things that you don't like. It will not apologize about it. You either agree with the Bible or you go on in your sin. I mean, this, this should be a Captain Obvious type statement, but when you disagree with the Bible, guess who's wrong? You with me? Guess who's wrong? It's not the Bible. Now again, we got preachers and all of them making excuses. It's a bunch of lies. We live in a world of lies. The Bible's always right. His, his word comes like a sharp two-edged sword and his face shines like the sun in all its strength. And then verse 17, and oh, see, folks, you gotta, this is why we need, this is why we need the book of Revelation. This is why we need the book of Revelation for our day. Um, In a day when so many want to belittle Jesus Christ and want to belittle what he's done, take a look at this Jesus. And then you think, if this happened to you, if you were John, how would you respond? I don't think we'd respond any different than how John did. Again, I don't think this was a voluntary thing. I don't think this is a thing like John thinks, oh, I, I better bow down. It's like it's, it's involuntary. It's like he can't help it. Verse 17, when I saw him, I felt at his feet as though dead. Our world needs this Jesus. Our world needs a Jesus that is boldly proclaimed and worshiped in his church a Jesus that humbles us. A Jesus that even, even let, a Jesus that just gets us for 2.5 seconds to not think about us, but to think about him, to think about his glory, to think about what he did. How could the blood of Christ pay for the sins of the entire world? Because the blood of Christ is infinitely more valuable than all of our blood and all of our lives combined. Eric, that's offensive, I don't care. It is the truth. We have no idea who he is and therefore we have no idea who we are. We need this Jesus as the Bible presents him, just as he is in all his glory. But this is so amazing. He, he falls at his feet as though dead, which if we saw the risen Christ shining, his face shining like the sun in all its strength, we would do the same thing. But, but, but look, at th- look at this. But he laid his right hand on me. And then this is, in the part, what does he command? Here it is, two things. Fear not and Behold. Those are commands. Fear not and behold. Just his presence is enough to make John like a dead man. He lays his hand on him to strengthen him. The same hand that holds the stars in his hand is the same hand that reaches out to strengthen him. And he says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. You see, here he goes again. He's, he's getting John. John, I know you're terrified. Get your eyes off yourself. Get them on to me. I loved you, and I have freed you from your sins by my blood. I have made you to be a kingdom of priests that ministers in my presence. Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and then he says, behold, and that's a command, Two commands, fear not, don't be afraid. The second one, behold, what's that, what's behold? Look, 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 look. Look at what? Look at who I am, look, I am alive forevermore. Church, our Savior is alive forevermore. He came once to deal with sin, Hebrews 9 says. He's coming again to judge those who do not know him and to rescue all those who are longing for his appearing. Fear not. Behold. This is why Paul says, um, the book of Colossians, very simple, but we miss it. And very practically, just for our own growth in Christ. 
How do we grow? It's not by understanding your Enneagram number. It's not by navel gazing and figuring out your personality type. It's by looking to Jesus. Paul says in Colossians chapter one, he says, him, Christ, him, him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, why? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. How do you grow? It's not by looking at yourself. It's by looking at him. It's by looking at his strength and his grace and his mercy. Church, let's do that, amen? Again, in the midst of trying to understand the prophecy, don't miss the person. This book, not just chapter one, this book is all about Jesus. And it's all about how he wins. And because we belong to him simply by faith, in his shed blood, mystery of mystery, like the bestest of the best good news, we win with him. We win with him. Worship team, you can come up. I just couldn't, this is gonna sound simple, but as I uh, was just meditating upon those last few verses this past week in my office, I, don't, I really don't mean to sound dramatic, but I think that it's true, and I bet the same is true of your life if you've trusted in Christ. But I, <laughs> as I think about this Jesus, who, risen in his glory, and all that he did for me, the only thing I could think of was just my own, uh, was just my own testimony and my own story. As I thought back when I was, I think I just turned 19 years old, about a month after I graduated. And I was not living like I knew that I should for Jesus Christ, but one morning, on a Sunday morning message, God grabbed a hold of my heart. And um, again, not to be overly dramatic, but it was simultaneously, I still remember it. it, it was, I simultaneously was overwhelmingly convicted of my sin and at the same time, totally overwhelmed by his love. And, and only the risen Christ can do that. And dear friend, if you're weak this morning, maybe you don't know where you'll spend eternity. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ is your personal savior. You don't know that you're a Christian. You're here this morning, and God has allowed you to still be here. And he comes, and again, this image, I, I know it's simple, but he just comes and he, he lays his hand on you. Why do we do that to people? To impart strength to them. To let them know that they're not alone, that we're there. And he is here. And he loves you. Just trust him. Father, thanks for today. We thank you for just a glorious, glorious picture of your salvation and who you are. Um, Father, we, I, I just, oh, this passage just so stirs my heart. I, Lord, let us be a church where the risen Christ is truly worshiped. Take our lives and do with them whatever you want, for you are far more wise and far more good than we could ever even hope to be. Just have your way, Jesus. And it's in your precious name that I pray. Amen. You guys stand.